You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is brought to you by the Writer's Program at UCLA Extension, helping you reach your writing goals one page at a time. Enroll now at uclaextension.edu. Hi, my name is Henry Lien, and I am the author of Peace Sprout Chen, Future Legend of Skate and Sword, and its sequel, Peace Sprout Chen, Battle of Champions. Henry Lien is a graduate of Brown University, UCLA School of Law, and Clarion West Writers' Workshop. His short fiction has appeared in publications like Asimov's, earning multiple Nebula Award nominations. He's the author of the award-winning and critically acclaimed Peace Sprout Chen series, on which he was mentored by George R.R. R. Martin, Chuck Palahniuk, and Kelly Link. Henry has worked as an attorney, fine art dealer, and college instructor. He currently teaches in the Writers Program and the Architecture and Interior Design Department at UCLA Extension. He received the UCLA Extension Department of the Arts Outstanding Instructor of the Year Award in 2017. Born in Taiwan, Henry currently lives in Hollywood. Peace Sprout Chen is a middle-grade fantasy series about a girl who comes to an academy to study a fictitious sport that combines figure skating with kung fu. The New York Times described it as Hermione Granger meets Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon meets The Ice Capades meets Mean Girls. The books explore themes of immigration, girl power, identity, teamwork, and leadership, and have received multiple awards and starred reviews in Publishers Weekly, Kirkus, and Booklist. The latest book in the series, Peace Sprout Chen, Battle of Champions, finds Peace Sprout as an immigrant who has to choose between allegiance to her adopted home and to her original homeland as the two countries face war, while developing new weapons that supplement kung fu figure skating with science and rock and roll. The idea for the Peace Sprout Chen series came from a very humble place. I was interested in kung fu at the time I came up with it, especially martial arts kung fu movies and specifically art house martial arts movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And I was interested in figure skating because it was the Olympics at the time. And I was interested in architecture because I have always been interested in architecture and always will be. So I decided to just mash them together into one convenient place as my own sort of private Disneyland, purely for my own entertainment. But as I explored this world more, I wanted to give it heft and reality as a fantasy world. I didn't want to treat it as something wacky because the concept sounds quite wacky and I'm not into wacky. So I wanted to do research and invest it with a level of reality at the level of something like a Tolkien. And I wanted to populate the world with details and culture drawn from my own heritage. So I did a lot of research and as I did research, it became something much richer and deeper. It became my own diverse queer Harry Potter. The first book took almost 11 years to write. And it was because of two reasons. The first reason was that when I started out building this world, as I mentioned, I wanted to invest it with a lot of heft and reality. And so the world building was critical. I placed an edict on myself. I was writing a fantasy, a children's fantasy, that had no magic. I took magic out, the defining aspect of most fantasies, because I didn't want to use magic as a crutch. I wanted to explore culture, history, and athletics and show that they could be as cool as any magic. And I knew that I could always put the magic back in afterwards 
if I felt I needed it. But I had a suspicion that after building up these other aspects of the world, I wouldn't need the magic. And that turned out to be the case. But I held the world building to a very high standard. I wanted everything to be alien so that we would get the full immigrant experience. Money is different. Foods are different. Customs are different. The way that you even say goodbye is different in this country. And I found that as I started to write the book, I would hit one small cultural detail. How do you open a door? Uh, how, do you, how do you count? And the writing would grind to a halt because I didn't know. And I didn't want to just rely on a default from our world. So I had to step back and create a 90-page encyclopedia of all the customs and all the technology and all the history of this world so that I could draw from it in an organic way when I came across it. And so that is a large part of that 12-year period, building up the world. I wanted every aspect, even the, the most granular detail of this world, to be unusual, to be alien, but also beautiful as a replication of my own immigrant experience, but with a warmth and a glow and a wonder about it. One of the things that I learned from writing both books, and one thing that I always tell my students, is that research is a fantastic friend. The world is filled with interesting things, and the world is inspiration if you decide it's going to be and treat it accordingly. So I would alternate writing with doing research in related topics in my world building, but I found that it just wrote half of the book for me. You have to find time to write, but you have to find time to live in this world, and this world will reward you for that. As an example, when I first started building this world and I came up with the idea of kung fu figure skating, I thought, as a former attorney, I'm going to do my research because I believe in homework. So I actually took kung fu and figure skating lessons. I had never done either before. And that ended up teaching me things that I did not know about the subject matter that I was writing about. I thought, I'm a pretty fit guy. I can handle kung fu and figure skating. How hard can this be? Famous last words, how hard can this be? So I took kung fu lessons and figure skating lessons at a beginner level. And if you've ever figure skated before, you know that there is this stage where your ankles will not stop wobbling no matter how hard you tie your skates. And at some point, you get past that, and you find this center of gravity thing that I apparently never could find. And it was very frustrating because there would be these young kids, mostly girls, that after a week, they were just zipping around me like minnows in water. And I literally could not stay upright on my skates. And I was often on my butt on the ice. And it was freaky and it was frustrating. And I thought, what is going on? Same thing was, hap was happening in my kung fu lessons. I would be paired with this 90-pound, 20-year-old woman, and we would do the same exercises together, and she would just kick my butt every time. And I would try, I tried harder than, harder than anybody else in the class to the extent where I was tearing muscles, and I just could not do what she was doing. And I thought, what is happening? And then I finally realized is that I had plucked out of the air these two sports that I thought would be cool to put together that happened to reward the ways that girls are built differently and young women are built differently. They are about balance and flexibility much more than brute strength. And 
Because of that, I realized I had stumbled across something that was all about girl power, all about rewarding the ways that people are different, the ways that we are built differently, the ways that we have different abilities, and that something like being small that can be seen as a disadvantage in some contexts is a huge advantage in another context. So that was one example of how research wrote my story for me and made it so much richer. And then I sat down to write and I discovered very belatedly, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, which impressed me so deeply. It is, in my opinion, one of the greatest children's books ever written and one of the greatest mysteries ever written. It's an ingenious clockwork puzzle with at least three or four different stories happening under the hood as you read the book. And then you hit a particular point and you've got to rewind to the beginning of the book and then read the other books that were happening underneath that. So the engineering required to accomplish such a book was something that was outside of my capabilities. I said, I cannot do that, but I want to be able to do that. So I learned about the construction of the book by mapping it out chapter for chapter, plotting out all the different threads and what was happening in every chapter. And that was a great education, but that took quite a while as well. So all of those things added up to about 12 years' time to produce the first book. The second book was more complicated, more ornate in its architecture and the choreography among the different elements, bigger action sequences, more complex interpersonal dynamics, more, more complicated emotions. But that book took a year because the foundation was built, the world was built, and I was still drawing from that world that I had built over the, the past decade or so. And regarding the process, I had learned a lot from that initial investment of analyzing a book that I love. I don't believe so much in the common wisdom of reading bad books to learn from them. I think, for me at least, I get infected by bad habits, cliche character motivations and arcs that are specific to a genre and also specific to cultures. For example, uh, stories that are self-esteem arcs where a character learns self-esteem, that is fundamentally a, a Western story arc. And I didn't want to just fill in those arcs by default. So I took a lot of time to think about story structure and what my own biases were. I was born in Taiwan, but I grew up in the U.S., so I wanted to deconstruct that before I, I started writing these books. I was able to map it out with a grid. I've got a whole Excel spreadsheet that I use to plot out the book, what is happening in each of the 10 plot threads. I can exit off so I can visually see what is happening, how many pages are uh, taking place in, in, in between uh, each, uh, each particular occurrence of a character arc, where are the major action sequences so that they are evenly spaced out and don't lump together? Or if I specifically want them to lump together, I can do it deliberately rather than ha having, having it happen without my knowledge. Where are the seasons? How many months are passing? Where are we in the school year? All these things required a lot of perspective and a lot of bird's eye view to map out. But once I had it mapped out, it just flowed out of me. Maybe because the writer in me was done with architecture and just wanted to play in that world. I don't have a set pattern or place for my writing. I do write at the three broomsticks in Hogsmeade Village at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. 
I live two subway stops from there, so I got a year's pass, and I use it as my writing cafe. And it's very inspiring because I am literally sitting in a product of a woman's imagination. So that is one place that I write, but I don't need to write there. I can write anywhere, basically. And I'm very disciplined. I can go for very long stretches, over 12 hours, without feeling it if I'm having fun. And I generally have a lot of fun when I write. But I find that the way that my creativity works is that there will be about 10 minutes in a day where the ideas are germinated. And usually it's when I'm waking up. The 10 minutes or so between sleep and fully being awake is the most productive period of my day, always. So I always have my phone by my bedside, and I will madly tap out the ideas that come to me. And then the day is spent in cultivating those ideas. And the other, the other time period that is most productive for inspiration is during exercise. I don't know why, but for me, doing exercise that does not require counting is the most productive time I can spend brainstorming uh, other than that unconscious or half-unconscious time in waking up. And perhaps it's the blood coming to my brain. Uh, perhaps it's distracting my body from being devoted to physically writing. But it frees up my mind, so I will set out on my power walk and pose myself one difficult, gnarly plot question. Invariably, by the end of the power walk, that question will be answered. And then I rush home and start working on it. I write from the first word to the last word. And it's because of what I'm writing right now. These are puzzle stories. And because of that, they are very tightly choreographed. And I do know where every chapter ends. I am striving to create a page turner because the, the world building is ambitious. The themes are ambitious for middle grade readers. So I know that the calculus that has to happen is that if I want to explore these themes, I have to make it that much more entertaining. So every chapter is very tightly constructed to end on a cliffhanger. Every chapter begins in the middle of the action and the reader is quickly caught up. For these reasons, I have to know exactly where everything is going to happen and I have to write from the first word to the last word. And my first drafts tend to be pretty polished. I do build out some of the interstitial parts in the revising process and I adore revising because I feel that 90% of the heavy lifting is done. I rely heavily on my agent and my editor for their input because there are many people's opinions who, whom I, who, that I value, but those are the only two that can say no to me <laughs> at this point. So I basically listen to what they say about the revision process, and they've guided me very well. I love revising because, as I said before, it feels like that is where the improvisation for exploring something on impulse, exploring something based on an unusual prompt such as sound. Okay, this chapter is going to be all about sound, or it's going to be motivated by a smell, or it's going to be all about the blocking, and nobody's going to say anything in this chapter. There is room for that, and I will carve out a space for that, and I usually fill in that space in the revision process. I spent a very packed three months revising the second book, and that was only because I was on a very short schedule with my publisher, they wanted to bring out the book three months earlier than they had told me. And so that falls on me, of course. But that was okay. I was very invested in the world. I was very immersed in the world. And I resented leaving it, actually. 
I would sit in the world for 12 to 14 hours a day during those months, and they just flew by. It was like being in Disneyland for 12 to 14 hours. So that was an unusually dense and compacted revision process. I was quite tired by the end of it. I don't know that I would recommend that. I didn't have a choice, but that ended up being the revision process for the second book. But strangely, despite all of the effort, the second book reads to me quite effortlessly. And I think the thing is I was having so much fun. And I think it comes through in the writing. And my first step towards becoming a writer was fairly late in life. I was 42 years old. And I was working as an art dealer at the time. And I finally just snapped and came out openly as an aspiring children's writer. So I quickly looked up some of my favorite writers. And I specifically wanted to write science fiction and fantasy. And one of my favorite writers is Ted Chang. And I looked up his background and saw that he went to a writer's workshop called Clarion or Clarion West. There are two workshops. And I said, well, what is that? They were these prestigious writing workshops. And Clarion West had some brand name instructors they were teaching that year. But the deadline was in about a week and a half. So I had to submit a writing sample, and I quickly put together the first couple of chapters that would become the first Peace Brout Chen book. And I applied, and I got in, and uh, George R. R. Martin, Chuck Palahniuk, and Kelly Link were very supportive of what I was doing, and I also wrote side stories in the world for them. They were very supportive, and they gave me the affirmation that I was on the right track. So after the workshop, I spent about a year drafting the first draft of the first novel. And I went through the normal process of querying agents, and it took a long time to find the right agent because the material was so unusual. I got so many very kind letters from people saying, we love this book. We don't know how to sell it. We don't know what it is. We don't even know if it's children's literature. So it took a while to find the right agent, but I ended up finding the perfect agent for me, Tina Dubois at ICM. And she has become a wonderful champion of me and the books. And she sold the series very quickly. She sold in a, in a, a two-book deal to my editor, Tiffany Liao, who is now at Holt, which is a division of Macmillan. And that process was very quick. I think it happened in about a week or a week and a half. And they committed to two of the three books, the books are planned as a trilogy, and the second book, while it is a satisfying chapter, and I think people will come to love it as, uh, as its own chapter, it is very much my Empire Strikes Back. So it leaves, it answers many questions and leaves the reader with even more important questions. So right now I am in the process of waiting and seeing how the books do so that the publisher can decide whether they want to pull the trigger on the third book. My agent, Tina Dubois, is a wonderful editorial agent. She put me through the ringer before she would accept my manuscript. She made me revise it three times, substantially. And we're talking thirty or 40,000 words worth of revisions, scrapping and rebuilding, with no commitment. Even if she didn't end up representing me, I knew I was making a better book because of her advice. So I invested the time. That process of revising and resubmitting took about a year to do. And once she accepted it, she was very comfortable with it. And she knew she had something that she knew that she could sell and that she could package and present in a comprehensible way. 
The second book was very different in how my agent and I revised it. By that time, I knew what she was looking for. I had learned a lot on a line level from her. She has a poetry background, and I had no idea about things such as word echoes and the the blocking of the scene and how far people are, and people will have these questions about how tall people are. If you refer to somebody pulling on a ham, well, the ham is down near your foot, so they wouldn't be pulling on the ham, they would be pulling on the sleeve, and all of these details I knew she would be asking about. So those are small things, and I already had learned from the long revision and resubmission process, I had better get those up to shape because I'm going to be hearing about them from my agent if I don't. But the more interesting thing is that she helped me find the balance to create the next book as a middle grade book. The first book I did not create specifically for children even. I didn't know what it was, just like many of these agents. I thought it could work as an adult science fiction fantasy novel as well as a children's novel. And it was my publisher's decision, and I think it was the right decision, to market it as a children's book, and not even YA, but middle grade. And it took me a long time to understand that. But what I came away from, uh, came away with from that process is an understanding that middle grade is a literature of brightness and hope, that you can explore the most difficult theme, but you've got to give them something at the end of the tunnel. And that balance is very delicate if you want to create the kind of fantasy that I wanted to create. And so there are themes in the second book that seem quite sophisticated and bleak for a children's book. Foot binding plays a major part in the second book. It makes an appearance in the first book and is built upon in the second book because it is a part of China's history and Taiwan's history. My own grandmother had bound feet. I remember vivid, vividly sitting on a couch watching music videos next to a woman who had bound feet. And to erase that part of history that I was drawing from f felt like erasure. So I knew that, that I, I wanted to have that in there as part of the plot. And the fight to eradicate foot binding is a major part of the second book. But my agent helped me balance this very upsetting real history with the goal of creating a book that was ultimately about brightness and hope. And the answer that we came up with was, we don't shade back the darkness. We give them a brighter light. The book is more fun, more funny, better action sequences. We give them more rather than less of either the brightness or the dark. The second book followed the first book very quickly. They were only eight months apart in publication dates. And that left me basically no time to read public comment see what the reviews were like from trade journals and from readers before I locked down the second book. But that was completely fine with me because I have a very specific and clear vision for this series and I write primarily for myself. It's satisfying when one publishes something. It's more satisfying to me when a reader responds to it None of that can equal the satisfaction to me of writing something that I've been waiting my whole life to read. 
So for that reason, it was actually beneficial for me to work in a vacuum. And the other thing also is that I'm a middle-aged man, and I started writing as a middle-aged man. And as a middle-aged man, I can handle going on Goodreads, and I can handle reviews by readers who completely don't get the book, because I know by this point in my life that taste trumps all. And I can let that just slide off of me. And there will be reviews by readers or by trade journals that do mean something to me because they found something in it that was true or that I had not seen before or it particularly resonated with them. And they were able to express it in a way that reached me. Those are all nice. None of those matter to me as much as creating something that I've been aching to birth my whole life. In the course of writing the second book, I learned that enthusiasm is contagious. I was very concerned about the sophomore slump for the second book, as most writers would be, especially in a series. And I threw everything I had at this book. This book is the greatest achievement that I've ever done on this planet so far. And I, I wanted very much for it to be better than the first book in every way. I don't know that it is objectively. I can't be objective about it. But I know I had so much fun writing it. And I made myself laugh and cry. And I think that that enthusiasm carries through. I think that that is something that I learned as a life lesson in writing the second book. Enthusiasm is self-fulfilling and contagious. And I think you can see the love that I poured into the second book. There's a warmth about it, even though it's darker than the first book. There's a warmth about it because I loved those characters so deeply, and I loved that book so deeply. And so that is the lesson that I think that book taught me. Enthusiasm makes the world go round. Peace Sprout is very good at going it alone. She's had to her whole life. She's the most capable most talented, most remarkable person she's ever met. And for her, that is not a gift. That means that if she cannot save herself, nobody can. So she's very lonely. And she spends much of the first book alone. And she learns how to branch out of that. But the second book specifically tasks her with working with other people. Her homeland that she came from is threatening to go to war with her adopted country now. And I was very much influenced by the plight of Japanese Americans during World War II, whose allegiances were divided, or they were asked to choose an allegiance between their home country and their adopted country. And towards that end, the academy stops being an arts academy that is devoted to performances of this fictitious sport and becomes a military academy where this art form is weaponized to use, against, uh, to use against their enemy in an actual war. And they form teams, which they call battle bands, which have a very rock band vibe to them. And her fate and her ability to stay in this country depend on her succeeding at these examinations that her team will have to undergo. So she has to learn both teamwork and leadership. How does she be a fair leader? How does she be a leader that does not steamroll over the talents of her teammates? And how does she do this while dealing with all of the other things that come with being uh, a young woman learning to grow up in a new country? And now, Henry Lien reads from Peace Sprout Chen, Battle of Champions. 
So I have to decide what to do about this Wu Yin Mei, quickly. Sensei Madame Yao says, You shall write the name of your battleman on the front of your banner, as well as the names of the captain and each member on the back. All right, we'll invite her, I say. We find Wu Yin Mei in the crowd of students and skate to her. I bow low and say, Wu Yin Mei, it would be my joyful fortune and profound honor if you would join my battle band. She bows back moderately and says, I would be honored to join your battle band. She adds with a serene smile, For now. What do you mean for now? I say. You will want to see if the alliance is suitable, as will I. Not every key fits every lock. Ten thousand years of stomach gas. Fine, I say. I skate to the urn and lift one of the banners of red pearl silk out. I grab a bowl of resin ink. I write on the back of the banner, Chen Pea Sprout, Captain, followed by Miu Doi, Chen Cricket, Miu Hisashi, Wu Yin Mei. I turn the banner around, dip the brush in the bowl, and write the Tamers of the Pearl on the front side. The Tamers of the Pearl? asks Hisashi. Yes, I say. That's the name of our battle band. <sighs> bit serious, isn't it? He says. Don't we want something with a bit more <clears throat> style? We're a serious battle band. I'm serious about winning. Aren't you? Peace, Sprout, says Doi gently. I agree with Hisashi, but for different reasons. I think it's a little too boastful. Boastful! It is the sort of name that Suki would choose, adds Yin Mei. Pretentious and conceited. Make me drink sand to death. This is the name of our battle band, I say firmly. Peace, Sprout, says Doi. Nobody would choose a name that would... Oh, so so now I'm nobody? That's what all of you, clucking like a gaggle of fire chickens, have concluded? Fine. Why don't we just call ourselves Nobody and the Fire Chickens? I lay the banner on the pearl, scrape the logograms for the tamers of the pearl off with my skate blade, and write Nobody and the Fire Chickens on the banner in jagged logograms. Behind me, a voice says, so what name did you choose? I turn to see Suki, bearing a banner on which is written, Radiant, thousand-story, very tall goddess, followed by the House of Flowering Blossoms Girls. Suki continues, Stealthiest skaters from Sheen, unstoppable secret weapon of Sheen. I'm in a bad mood already. I don't need Suki putting ideas in people's heads. I shout at her, I am so sick of your stinking sour face. Etsuko, you placed second last year. You could have placed first if she didn't stop it. She's keeping all of you down. Etsuko should be the captain of your battle band, not Suki. Suki's only strong if you make her strong. She's nothing without followers. She's nothing without you, and she knows it. Suki hisses, you filthy, low-quality senior. What are you doing? She turns to see that Etsuko has snatched their banner from her. How dare you! Give that back to me, or I'll have you whipped for insubordination! Etsuko steps one skate back behind the other in a defensive combat position. Then, one girl after another places her skate in the same position, facing down Suki. <laughs> I, I can't believe this. I broke their battle band. Only two inconsequential girls skate over to join Suki. Suki says to Etsuko and the rest of the girls, You are going to pay for this! 
Suki and her two remaining followers skate to the urn and take out a fresh banner. Suki brushes the name Radiant Thousand Story Very Tall Goddess on the banner. Etsuko, look, I say. You can't use that name, says Etsuko. I thought of it, cries Suki. Sensei Madame Meow, calls Etsuko. Sensei Madame Meow skates over. Think of a new name, Suki, she says, and hurry up. Any battle band without an acceptable name by the end of the hour will be called Last Place Losers on Skates. Infuriate me to death, says Suki. She writes, Radiant 10,000 story, most tall goddess, made of golden rubies. No names that are too close to other names or are misleading, says Sensei Madame Yao. Think of a new name quickly. Time is almost up. Cricket tugs at my sleeve and says, Peace, Sprout. Not now, Cricket. I'm enjoying watching Suki's humiliation. She looks like she's about to burst into flames with fury. But she scrapes off the name and begins to write in gummy letters, Princess Suki, and, ah, she can't use that name, I say to Sensei Madame Yao. It violates the rule against misleading names because there's a real princess that's pro-famous now. Sensei Madame Yao nods in agreement. Peace, proud, says Cricket more urgently. Not now, I say. Suki hurriedly begins scraping the name off when we hear a bong resound in the air. Time's up, brushes down calls Sensei Madame Yao. <laughs> Suki's battle band is now committed to the name Last Place Losers on Skates. I turn to gloat over Suki's reaction. Her mouth looks like a jellyfish trying to turn itself inside out. But then she starts to smile. She's looking above and behind me. I turn around. I see all of my battle band mates. Doi is furious. Cricket is shaking his head with sadness. Yin Mei peers at me with disbelief. Hisashi is laughing. I look up and see what Suki was smiling at. It's the banner displaying the new name of our battle band. Nobody in the fire chickens. Make me drink sand to death for 10,000 years.
over there, we got Yin Mei riding on the drum blade. Doi, he's playing Ahu like the Empress of Heaven with Peace Rock dominating the magnetic Shamisen. As for me, you may call me Crick, and we are nobody and the This season was produced by Jamie Moss. Audio support was provided by Andre Nikolaev. The Writers Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.